Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Tom Rebecki. Dr. Rebecki is a medical advisor at the National Board of Medical Examiners, NBME, and a scientific advisory board member for the GLUT1 Deficiency Foundation. He's been in practice for more than 20 years and specializes in emergency medicine. Thank you so much for being with us today, Tom. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Rishi. It's, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to talk with you. Awesome. So maybe just start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself, what led you to your interest in a career within healthcare and especially emergency medicine? Yeah, sure. So I finished medical school in 1992, so I'm coming up on 30 years. And if you're asking me what I told the person sitting across from me at the table at the interview... I don't exactly remember. Um, I think all of us who go into medicine have their own personal mission, whether they publicize that or keep it to themselves over the years. And mine was about helping people. And it was so long ago, but I found my way to medicine just through interest in science and things like that. I took an interest in conditions and illnesses that my family members had and, and found my way into medicine. I pointed myself in that direction in high school and college and was successful enough and lucky enough, to be honest with you to get into medical school. And then I found my way to emergency medicine, not knowing what I wanted to do in medicine and found myself seeing patients in an ER at a place called Cooper Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, and kind of it all came together for me. So did my residency in emergency medicine and finished in 1995 and placed myself in clinical situations, first at Temple University Hospital and then back at Cooper, where I've been for 23 years, in environments where I kind of care for a variety of people a lot of them kind of inner city, but both of those institutions are tertiary care centers. So one of the challenges at working at a place like that that I love is having to kind of be able to care for the depth and breadth of the patients that can come in. It's not one type of patient that has one type of problem. I really value that. And obviously the people in those organizations really make the practice of medicine great in those very special places I've worked in. So for those that may not know, I've been to Camden. I've never been to Cooper. Can you just kind of paint a picture of what sorts of situations you're in at Cooper, what kind of cases you saw, and what sort of patient population you're referring to in terms of what you got to see? Sure. So at, at Cooper, where I still practice emergency medicine, it's um, you know, Camden is an impoverished city. It's not a very big one. It's maybe 75,000 people. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it's on not desirable lists, like the most dangerous cities in the country. Not something we're proud of in Camden, but I see a different side of Camden. You know, we see obviously some of the violence in, in our communities there. We see some of the problems with drug addiction and addiction in general, but it's a tertiary care facility. So, for instance, we have um, a big cancer institute, an MD Anderson Cancer Institute there, that people come from all over the state of New Jersey to receive their care. So, we wind up taking care of those patients as well as the population indigenous in Camden as well. You know, the reason I ask is I used to work in an inner city Boston hospital and also worked in inner city LA. And, and I feel like during that experience, I've learned more than I ever did outside of those years. And so I just imagine that you, you saw a lot and learned a lot. It certainly sounds that way. Yeah. You know, one of the awesome things about, I have a, a long history at one institution watching it change over the years. From when I arrived, we were maybe seeing 30,000 ER visits a year to 90,000. We've added resources like the Cancer Institute. We have a whole 
section of, actually it's part of our ER department of addiction medicine, where we're able to focus on that and be kind of national leaders in that regard. So this little place like Camden, New Jersey is really kind of made a mark and that's uh, give them credit for their persistence and their educational mission. You know, there's residency programs, there's a medical school there. And, and that's one of the, also the reasons that I plan to never leave. That's awesome. Good for you and also good for Cooper. I'm curious about your involvement with GLUT1 deficiency and specifically how you got involved with the foundation as a scientific advisory board member. Do you mind just walking me through how that happened? No, it was not necessarily by choice. My son, Dominic, who is now 10, was normal childhood birth. And then just at a couple of months, started having these kind of weird, we'll call them movement disorders, that caused us to seek medical attention with neurologists. And he was having seizure-like activity, although they never diagnosed him with seizures through all the methods that one you would think, a CAT scan, MRI, EEGs, things like that. And so we were kind of going along. People were trying to figure out what was going on unsuccessfully. As he aged, he was having developmental delays and these movement disorders, we'll call them, seizure-like, but not exactly seizures. And he was falling well behind on the curve. And uh, you know, we were doctoring for it, um, as you would expect. All along the way, he was one of the happiest kids in the world. So we were, we were very lucky in that regard. And then after seeing all the specialists, he was in his pediatrician's office. And I still thank the day that my wife took him for that visit. And we got that doctor. He just took like a, a view of Dominic's care, kind of like a quarterback would, just kind of looking down the field at everything, rather than a specific technician who's just there to run the ball or catch the ball or block. And he said, hey, have you thought about genetic testing? And we're like, no, we never thought about it. Now, I'm a physician. My wife's a nurse. We learned a lesson there, right? Not just with Dominic, that getting medical care is tough and complicated and you need lots of eyes and ears. So based on that suggestion of the pediatrician, we sought to have an appointment at the local children's hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's a world-renowned institution. And we got on a list to have genetic testing, which was May. Uh, Dominic was about two and a half at the time. And then we had a follow-up appointment in August, but we got a call July 5th that they needed to meet with us about Dominic's genetic testing. And we knew obviously something was up. And so they broke the news to us that he had GLUT1 deficiency syndrome, but initially kind of instilled some hope in us in that there was a treatment at least. And so we were bystanders, immediately kind of thrust into this world of GLUT1 deficiency and what that meant for our son. That was kind of the first step. And then we were reaching out. We were told at the time, there may be 500 people in the world that have this genetic deficiency, this single gene deletion. So we start looking around and you know you feel desperate as a parent. And we came across the GLUT1 Deficiency Foundation and the leadership there. And I'll, and I'll specifically call out Gwyneth Steele, who was the president of the organization, who's now our executive director and just works tirelessly it is a family-run organization. Just about everybody has a child or is somehow directly affected by someone who has GLUT1 deficiency syndrome. So that was our way in. And like any interested parents, we wanted to help once we overcame the shock of the diagnosis and quite literally the shock of the treatment, which is a ketogenic diet, right? So that's the, the foundation of the treatment. And that's not an easy task. It's more than just eating Atkins bars or something like that. It's really a measured diet that's, you know, Dominic's on an 85% fat diet. And we had to transition him. There was a small, a short hospitalization, but we transitioned him 
in three or four days, and he's never been out of ketosis from that ketogenic diet since. That's a remarkable story, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I'm kind of struck by one thing that you said, which is the pediatrician was the one that thought to do the testing. And and it just strikes me that obviously you're a very bright person. Your, your wife is obviously very bright and you, you're medically trained. What do you think is the reason that that blind spot sometimes happens? You know, I think when you're dealing with somebody that has a chronic illness as a parent, there are peaks and valleys in your efforts, right? You can't have your foot on the gas going hundred miles an hour all the time. And so during those valleys, I would say you rely on the people that you trust that are caring for your son in this. And there was no malice by any of the people that were involved in his care, but we tried to separate ourselves from the doctoring side of things because I clearly was out of my element, right? As an emergency physician, GLUT1 deficiency is about a million miles away from that. And when I was in medical school, this, this didn't exist, right? It was named in 1992 or 1993 as DeVivo disease, as the, as the scientist physician pediatric neurologist at, at Columbia who discovered the gene deletion. So I, I think that blind spot was a bit of trust. It was a bit of our focus on caring for Dominic because, you know, at the time when he was first diagnosed, it's a lot of work, the ketogenic diet. So there's lots of different reasons. Obviously, we'd love a redo from the time when he had his first symptoms, which were at three or four months of age. But we are fortunate that we recognize this when we did. Most children are diagnosed at an older age. Dominic was just prior to his third birthday, and he's done remarkably well. And you know, one of the other things that we've learned in terms of medicine is that, like every medical problem, there's a spectrum of disease. So I think diabetes, you can meet an 80-year-old diabetic who is as healthy as a horse, and you can meet a 40-year-old diabetic who has had really lots of complications. And so is GLUT1 deficiency syndrome. We're thankful that Dominic's on the mild end of the disease spectrum, but we interact with the foundation at their meetings and, and we see that spectrum of disease and it makes us want to lean in and help as much as we can, my wife and I. You know, another thing that strikes me is you, you talked about the fact that as an emergency physician, you're a million miles away from this and, you know, your training in this was at a time when we knew very little about it. You also professionally are a medical advisor with the National Board of Medical Examiners. And in that capacity, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on how you think about what training or experience medical students or really any training in the healthcare field should get in rare disorders and how that's done today versus how it ought to be done optimally. Back when I was a medical student, I remember, I think when I was doing my pediatric rotation, I spent one half day with a geneticist. It was interesting. I would say it was hardly an immersion. So I think medical education has changed a bit. In my role in MBME as a medical advisor, so the MBME is a testing organization, it's an assessment organization. We are involved with USMLE medical licensing exams and other assessments that medical schools use. I can tell you that we work closely with the geneticists to help write really good medical knowledge questions that will assess medical students' knowledge about genetics. I think that's an evolution in not only the training, but also in the assessment. And as it relates to education, kind of one of my own personal missions is that I make sure I talk at my medical school about Dominic's condition and our journey, but not really to put the spotlight on one deficiency, but put the spotlight on just listening to people and parents and family members and patients 
because they're going to tell you, and I do believe this in my own practice in emergency medicine, they're going to tell you what is going on. Like if I put into Google right now, all of the things that Dominic had, GLUT1 deficiency would come up. It wouldn't have come up seven years ago because there's just been a whole body of research and knowledge that we've gained over the last seven to 10 years around this and other rare diseases. That makes a lot of sense. I'm also curious to get your thoughts. You know, we're living through what might be the worst wave of COVID and it's likely to get much worse. Do you mind just sharing your thoughts with the various hats you wear as a father, as a now expert on very rare disorder, an emergency room physician? Like, what do you think COVID has revealed to you in terms of our healthcare system? And what do you think we need to do in the coming weeks and months to really strengthen our healthcare system, maybe even years out as well? It's a great question because I have lots of different feelings depending on which hat I wear. So for instance, thinking about my son, who's a very kind of social individual, he did not do well when we were homeschooling in the spring because of COVID. And the summertime was the summertime, lots of outdoor stuff but still limited, right? With friends at 10, you remember, you lived and died by your friends, nine and 10. He needs that social interaction. So that makes me think of, you know, not just my son, but the population and what, how my wife and I reflect on our time. Everybody is feeling cooped up. I think we're going to see, and I think I've started to see personally in the ER, the non-physical effects of this disease in terms of mental health. I think that's something that we are going to see balloon in the coming months. Um, I think people are maybe focused on the medical aspects of COVID, which by the way, when I was caring for COVID patients in March and April in my ER, they were a lot sicker. Now we're seeing better outcomes, right? It's because the amazing thing about the medical community is how how we have the ability to learn, almost learn on the job. Things that we were not doing in April, we're doing now as the standard of care give you an example. Somebody comes in with a respiratory illness and they test positive for COVID and they have an x-ray that looks like a COVID chest x-ray. We were avoiding steroids in April. Now it's the standard of care treatment because we know it's that there's an inflammatory component to it. I think that's a gigantic win for medicine. I think that we've learned so much in such a short period of time that our outcomes, I suspect, are going to get better. It's the personal behaviors that are going to make the numbers rise. And I think that's a combination of people not wanting to be cooped up, not wanting to be told they can't do certain things. And it's a balance. It's definitely a balance. You personally have a a huge stake in teaching. And as a teaching company, we love to extend the opportunity to all of our guests to fill in knowledge gaps. And it could be on any topic that you think is relevant. Do you have anything that you think is a myth or maybe a, a misunderstood or misrepresented topic that you could spend a few minutes educating us on? Well, let me kind of answer that in two different ways. Everybody kind of has a personal mission. I've mentioned one or two of mine, and I've mentioned mental health on this, and I am thankful that I don't have a lot of mental health challenges in my family, but there's a real need for better mental health care everywhere, especially in emergency departments. I've seen it in two states when I was working in Pennsylvania and now in New Jersey, and um, I really think that there's an opportunity there uh, for medicine in general to do better. That's not a misconception. I think it's a a lack of focus. And and I think we can do a better job in general in medicine and keeping our eye on that ball. And the other thing, one of the things that I talk to my students and residents about, um, it's really kind of part of the foundation of my educational mission, right? So I, I chose to go into academic medicine and work at a very academic institution 
like the MBME, because I believe that most everything can be found out about a patient at the bedside. And, and the history does really matter. What you discuss with a patient really matters. And, and I think we are, I don't know that we're guilty of it, you know, kind of completely in medicine, but we rely on technology so much in medicine where we kind of slight the patient at the bedside, get a minimal history, and then we go off and reflexively order tests, which sometimes or many times don't answer the questions where really the real answer is really at the bedside. And so, you know, my residents, I talk about this all the time, they're, they're way smarter than I am. They can wield technology better than I can. They can do things with an ultrasound I could never dream of doing. But I try to teach them how to doctor because that's kind of how I grew up in medicine. And if you ask the right questions to people, they're going to tell you directly or indirectly what's going on with them. So that's kind of my educational focus. Even in a classroom setting, I talked about it yesterday to my residents. I gave them a talk. But definitely clinically, that's where I kind of focus my attention when I'm seeing patients. That segues for me nicely into kind of what I wanted to get at also, which is advice. And, you know, you just spoke about the importance of doctoring and listening. Do you have any advice for how folks can do that more effectively? And especially now with all these distractions and demands that come with you, wherever you go, especially around, you know, billing and, you know, residents are thinking, oh, I've got to kind of discharge patients to get out by a certain time. How do you negotiate that if you're a young trainee coming into the world of today? It's a great question, and I don't have a great answer for it because there are all of those pressures in medicine to kind of move volume in a way, and time doesn't necessarily get reimbursed. And so there's a fastness. The pace of medicine is quick. And so how do you slow it down? Some of my colleagues at Cooper Hospital wrote a book called Compassionomics. So the CEO of the hospital, Anthony Mazzarelli, and the person who is in charge of our critical care unit and internal medicine department, Steve Treziak, both emergency physicians by training, interestingly, wrote a book called Compassionomics. They put a science behind the idea of compassion, and it doesn't take a whole lot of time. And they make an argument in their book that by lending compassion to a patient, you are contributing to their healing. So extrapolating from that book, just a few more seconds at the bedside can make a difference. So we can do it. We just have to do it. That's a lovely point. And one thing that I found, which is kind of a parallel problem, is I think a lot of the clinicians in the healthcare system also feel devoid of value and purpose. And that, like you said, a few seconds also helps to fill their cups as well. It kind of reminds you why it is such a great career and why it is such an awesome responsibility and why it's such a special place. And so I think that it, it certainly does both those things, right? It feeds two birds with one scone, which is a phrase I recently heard and liked. Yeah, and I like that. So I, I often tell my residents, so I, I have this saying that you start your shift with a certain amount of coins in your pocket. And during your shift, people are going to take your coins, whether it's the nurses, your patients, your other doctors. And the goal is to, you have two goals, to end your shift with coins in your pocket. But to find those opportunities to get more coins, and those patients are that opportunity, right? So you can have a great patient reaction that can fill your cup. I'll say the patients can put coins in your pocket. So at the end of the shift, you're walking out with a full pocket full of coins. That's a great day in the emergency department. I'm going to use that this evening when I talk to my son. He's four years old, but I think he'll enjoy that analogy a lot. Yeah. Uh, listen, it's been phenomenal chatting with you, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And um, I look forward to future endeavors um, with osmosis. It's been fantastic so far. Awesome. Well, I'm Dr. Ish Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.